0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, All Things for Good. Christmas and Easter, we've made those days that the children stay in here with us. Um, This year, one of the things that prompted this is with some of the COVID stuff, we've had uh, fewer volunteers than normal. Um, So rather than try to overwork everybody, uh, we decided uh, to do some of these days that uh, periodically throughout the year, sometimes the kids are going to stay in here with us, which we rejoice in. Uh, So next Sunday, that'll be one of those days the children will be in here with us. Uh, One more thing to pass along. Uh, There is a conference coming up, uh, uh, a gospel conference that's coming up called G3. Um, And uh, if you're interested in that, um, see Brian Blair. He's kind of putting together a group uh, that's going to be heading there. I'm excited about it and uh, uh, to hear some of the preaching and things going on there. So if you'd like to join us, uh, want some more details about it, please see him there. All right, Romans chapter 8. We're going to read 28 to 30, just these three verses, and then I'll pray and ask for God's grace on us. So please read along with me as we uh, start in verse 28 there. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we sons and daughters, we come bow before you. We've worshiped in various ways and now, Lord, we long we long to understand your truths. We long to come to know you more deeply, know your purposes, know your gospel, know your will, know your plans for us, O oh God, as we look to your word. And so Father, we pray, glorify your name, hallow your name. We ask that you'll hallow your name to us and in us, And Lord, that it would cause a transforming in us that Lord, then we go out and we hallow your name to the ends of the earth. But right here, right now, we want to know you and know the glory of the grace that you've given. Your word is filled with sweet, precious promises. And this one right here is one of those we hold highly. And Lord, as we come to this, um, I feel completely um, inadequate who's sufficient to preach such glory but I ask God help us bless this time as I teach help me Lord to do so in a way that is helpful and bless us O God to come to a deep understanding of this promise uh, of its ramifications and that through seeing the beauty of the promise, we come to know your glory more. So father, please accomplish that bless, bless the time where the, the, the young ones are going to be learning their truths. We pray awaken, open their eyes to the gospel, bring them to build up, to be uh, discipled warriors who live for your glory and bless us. oh God, as we study everything that is needed, every soul that's gathered, please God, bring us to where we need to be, show us what we need to see, conquer our sin, bring us into submission, bring us to glory in the, the wondrous things you have done in your son. So please, O Lord, help. And we ask it through the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this verse, this is one of those verses from scripture that when we when we quote it, when we say it, we just almost kind of like say it with just this sigh of joy. Sometimes when we're encouraging one another, we don't even quote it. We just look at one another and say, Romans 8, 28. And we know what it means. This is a well-known and much loved verse of scripture. If you think about it, this one verse of the Bible probably comes up, I, I would guess, about 25 sermons a year. You know, so even if we don't quote it, we're implicitly referencing it. I mean, uh, you know, there's over a thousand chapters of the Bible. And there's one verse that we at least reference in some way half of the sermons and messages of the year. What a, what a gift of a promise what we have in this verse is there's a, there's a general principle that is stated, and the Bible will do this a lot. It will quote a, a general principle, then it'll take that principle and apply it to a specific situation. So the principle can be applied uh, broader than just the context, but it's applied to one specific kind of thing. So this is one of those verses, because it is speaking a general kind of umbrella uh, principle You can put this verse on a coffee mug. (laughs) You can put it on a t-shirt. So we often say, you gotta be careful about that kind of thing. There are verses that you should not do that with because to take it out of its context, it can seem to be saying something that it's not actually saying. Romans 8, 28. Put it on a coffee mug, put it on a t-shirt, whatever other kind of slogan banner in your household you want to put it on because it is a verse that as it stands alone, we can understand it. It is wonderful. It is encouraging. But even while I say that, we are missing some of its grandeur and we are missing some of its beautiful depth if we only quote it outside of its context. Because 828 comes in the midst of Romans 8, which is perhaps the most glorious chapter of the Bible. Uh, it's been said by some that if all of the Bible is the, is the food that our soul needs, Romans 8 is, is the main dish. It's the steak. And I would say that at least in terms of our joy, at least in terms of our, our hope and the strength that we draw in our souls from promises of the Bible. So it, 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 there is this glorious crescendo in chapter eight. And so we, we must understand 828 in light of, uh, yes, the whole chapter, but then let me also say particularly verses 28 to 30 those three verses form a paragraph. They're a a transition paragraph um, bringing us from what we've just been studying and then now there will be a, a, a bit of a turn of attention that will bring us to then verses 31 to 39, which is its own glorious unit. And 28 to 30 is a transition statement and it is summarizing Everything that fits in this whole first 11 chapters Um, and the first seven and a half chapters that we've worked our way through now, it is a statement regarding all that we have seen in that, because what have we been learning in the book of Romans from uh, chapter one to halfway through eight thus far, the gospel of our salvation, The, the gospel. We've learned some of these big words, justification, sanctification Glorification. Justification, remember that act, that moment where you are first made right with God at the moment of turning to Christ in faith. Then we enter a, a period of a work of transformation, a season of life until we uh, pass off of this earth called sanctification, where God is transforming us, making us more godly. And then glorification, that time where God will finish that work when we come into glory. And so verses 28 to 30 are verses that are summing up all of that. So verse 28 can stand alone. And you know, it, it isn't interesting that most of the time when we quote Romans 8:28, we are usually addressing circumstances of pain and suffering. And that's legitimate. It's a general principle. But also see that verse 28 is spoken in regard to what comes in verses 29 and 30. So maybe to explain it this way, we could also read the passage backwards. So read 29 and 30 first, and then verse 28 is describing what just we looked at in verses 29 to 30. So let let me me just kind of summarize 29 to 30 there. If you kind of look at it um, there, let me just sort of say it in some different words. God designed a people in his mind before the world was even made. Before the world was even made, he predestined a group of people deciding that he would save them. And then as these people were born throughout history, God came to them and worked in them to draw them to himself. He called them. Those people that he called, that he drew, they believed The Old Testament saints, they believed in God's promises. In the New Testament, we believe on the Lord Jesus. And at the moment of believing, we are justified. Then we are kept by God. There is security because he holds us fast in his sovereignty. And he is going to bring us home to the day that we are glorified. And he swears by his name that he will do so. And we can then say, verse 28, God is working all things for the good of those who will believe on his son. So verse 28 is spoken specifically, and I hope I'm making this clear, that even though it is a general principle, it it is summarizing the good that God is working in our salvation That from start to finish, before the world began, into the eternal future, towards his elect, God is working so that those souls will be brought to salvation, kept in salvation, brought home to glory. And it also includes that every detail of their lives will be worked for their everlasting good. Verse 28 is about days of difficulty pain. It's also about when times are pleasant. Okay. So Romans eight twenty eight is not just a hospital verse, which sometimes we kind of think about. It's also for the days of gladness. It's also for the days that are kind of mundane. God is working all things This is about every molecule that moves around you. It's about every millisecond that ticks off of the clock of your life. It is about God directing every event, every circumstance, painful and pleasant so that his elect are justified, kept, sanctified, held fast, brought home to glory. And God is ensuring that this will happen. So what I want to do for this morning is I want to take some time and talk about the verse as a whole, um, do a little bit more time putting it into its context, showing how it fits in the passage, and then we'll kind of dissect the verse and look at some of its specifics. So um, this week, we're going to kind of talk about the promise um, and its audience, uh, who it is for next week, Lord willing. um, I know Snowpocalypse is coming this week. I'm intending to still have service this next week, Uh, uh, but next week, look at uh, the golden chain of salvation, which is what this passage is, how it's often referred to talking about all of the events and works of God to save his people. But let me take just a second and, um, show a little bit more about how this passage fits into the overall argument of verses one through 11 in explaining the gospel of our salvation. Um, If you will, just briefly jump back to chapter one for a second. Chapter one, verses 16 and 17. Um, We said at the beginning and we've said numerous times that those two verses, uh, 16 and 17 of chapter one, are the central idea of the book. And that the first 11 chapters are basically more fully explaining the content of those two verses right there. So if you look, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe God is working for the good of those who believe jump to chapter 3 for a second now, it'll be obvious that we could have picked a whole lot of different verses but chapter 3 um, after being shown our, the fact that we are not right with God on our own and that we need to be forgiven and made right with God chapter 3 begins to explain this biblical word justification If you pick up there in verse 24, which could have picked numerous verses, but look what it says. Being justified as a gift. By his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The next verses go on to explain that God the Father set this plan in motion. He sent his son to pay the penalty through his redemptive uh, death and resurrection. And then verse 26, God is the just and the justifier. He's righteous and the one who makes us righteous by grace. God is working For the good of those who believe on his son. Jump to chapter five. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is working good for those who trust in his son. Then chapter six began this section of sanctification, six, seven, and eight. And I mean, we could pick just just about any verse in this section. If you look at verse four, therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might walk in newness of life. God has given us a new kind of life. We're being transformed. God is working good for his people and then we come to chapter 8 and what has been the subject of chapter 8 well it's still in this sanctification section and specifically it has been about how the Holy Spirit indwells the people who are justified those who have trusted in Christ and the Holy Spirit he is working to sanctify them and Christian your sanctification I, I know we don't see it yet it's hard for us to, to get that perspective of all of eternity, but we have to understand reality is defined by eternity. Reality is not defined by the trivial matters of this brief little life. Your, your very life is defined by your eternity with who you are on the day that you stand before the living God. When Jesus holds us to account on the day of judgment what you are given what you what is spoken to you on that day who you are on that day that defines all of your existence that defines who you are that defines your eternity on that day when we see and we realize all that matters is the fruit that we bore to the glory of God. All that matters is his kingdom and his righteousness. On that day, we will understand that this season right here, where we believers are being transformed, being made holy, that sanctification was huge. God is working for our everlasting good, because your holiness is your everlasting reward. It is your everlasting good. So another way of saying what we have been seeing in chapter eight, God is working for your good. God is working for your everlasting good. So from start to finish, before the world was made into the eternal future, God is working for the good of those people that he is saving and in fact in His infinite wisdom, He is ordering all things, all things, not just your worship, not just your spiritual activities, not just your Bible reading, all things and not just your pain, all things and that includes all things, He is working for your progression in faith and obedience. Your God is working for your good. And so that's how the verse fits in the whole argument over the whole thing. There have been numerous verses as we've studied through Romans that are some sort of conclusive or summarizing word spoken to the whole argument and verses 28, 29 and 30 are more. So let's begin to work through the verse specifically. I'm going to do it in two parts. First, who the promise is for, and then secondly, we'll look at the promise itself. So first, who the promise is for. You you notice the, the way that it is worded. This promise that all things are working together for good is given to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Like all of the other precious promises of the Bible, this is spoken for those who are not at war with God, who are at peace with God, who have entered into covenant with God, those who have been made right with God. And we really need, I'm I'm gonna go to some great lengths here to try to really make this clear. We have to have this understood because do we not live in, in, in a culture that all the time wants to take the promises of the Bible while rejecting the salvation of the Bible? that they want to claim the promises then they want to claim specifically even the promises of Romans 8 nothing can separate us from the love of god they want to claim the promise but denying denying the door whereby we walk in to receive those promises so let me let's make crystal clear you can only have peace with god you can only be made right with god in one way it is through his son there's one deal Many times people think that they are, they are, they're fine with God. They're okay with God. They maybe even use some of this language of don't worry about me, me and God, we've got our own little arrangement. And what they mean is they had some moment of significant prayer where they felt really deep about it. And they tried to make a bartering deal with God. One of these deals where they say, you know, God, if you will bless me and do what I think you should do, then I'll, and then they fill in the blank. they say they'll leave some sin or give some kind of uh, money to charity or whatever. They think they've made some kind of deal with God. You've got to understand that there is only one arrangement, one deal, and it is presented to us in scripture. You're not going to negotiate <laughs> some new deal with God. There's one deal, one door, one bridge, one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you are going to be made right with God, if you are going to be at peace with him, if you are going to come and receive eternal life, there is only one deal on the table and it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to come to Christ and trust in him. But you won't do that until you believe what the Bible says, that it's actually true. You won't do that until you accept what God says, that right now on your own, if you have never turned to Christ, you're not right with him. All the time, the world's just assuming that they're already right with God. You have got to see what the Bible says, that right now, if you are not in Christ, you are not right with him. You must come to him, come turn Trust in Christ to be saved. And when you are saved, this is how it works. It's all or nothing. It's all the promises or none of the promises. It doesn't work out that if you obey kind of like a 50% effort, then maybe you'll get like 50% of the promises. That's not how this works because it's not based on you, your goodness, your works, you earning anything. It is receive the Lord Jesus by grace. God offers this gift of grace, receive him, and you get all of the promises. Right with God, you get his promises. Outside of Christ, you get none of them. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so that includes this one right here. If you want this promise, you must have Christ. So our appeal to you, if you have not yet turned, is to believe, it is to bow the knee of submission to Christ. Because notice how the verse is worded. It is for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So two things there, two prerequisites that are mentioned. I just kind of summarized it. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That is those who are in Christ. But consider these two prerequisites that were given. Love God called according to his purpose. This isn't two different groups of people like maybe there are some people who love God, but they're not called. That's not how it works or vice versa. No, the people who love God are the people who are called by God. In fact, as we learn and the next couple verses are going to explain and we're going to be seeing a whole lot more of it when we come into chapter nine, we love God because he called us to himself. So if you trust in Christ, you love God, It is because God came and did something in you. First John says, we love him because he first loved us. This work of calling, this this work of drawing that God has done, this is what has brought about our love for him. So if you think about it, as we're all the time talking about, and it's going to come up today as well, this whole mystery of how God is sovereign God is the one who has planned and predestined. God is the one who is bringing about his purposes on the earth. And yet we make real decisions. We make choices. How do those two things work together? If God is predestined, then how are my choices real? And all these kinds of things, that mystery, it's it's, it's in this verse. We talk about it as God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Both of them are referred to here. There is your responsibility, love God, And then the divine work, those who are called. So let me talk about each of these just just kind of briefly. Um, Love for God can be kind of a tricky thing. We could stop and do just a whole study on do you love God? What does it mean to love God? What are ways that we can misunderstand what that is? So let, let me just give just three quick words of caution about our love for God and what it means because uh, there's a danger here. There's a there's a great danger when the Bible says, "Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved." That there, like the Book of James talks about, that there are some who just rush to be like, "Oh, okay, well then I'm good because I acknowledge that Jesus exists." Or, when this verse says that this promise is for those who love God, th- there can be just kind of a quick rushing to it of, "Oh yeah, yeah, I love Him. I'm good. I've got it. The promise is mine." So let me give let me give some cautions. First, many times people think that they love God because they do not feel active hatred for God. And they just assume, they just assure themselves, I love him. I'm good. This is the same dilemma that often exists in marriage. Many a husband uh, insists that he loves his wife. He's convinced that he loves his wife just simply because he does not have active loathing for her. Or he says it with his lips. I love you. See there, I just said it, okay? Actual love is something higher than these things, okay? Love is more than just the absence of active hatred and towards the Lord. Love for God is more than this. Jesus said that if we love him, it will be made known. It it will be revealed by our lives. We are not able to look into anyone's heart and and know, or even able to look inside of my own heart and know myself perfectly perfectly. We are not not able to look inside to see, but what does Jesus say? Jesus said, look at the pattern of life and it will be revealed if there is love. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay. Now, obedience does not equal love. Obedience comes out of love. To love God is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To truly love God is, is more than just the absence of disgust for him. Second caution. It's also the case that sometimes people think they love God because they have affection for a God they've imagined in their own minds. This mysterious Unitarian Jesus that everyone's always talking about, who just wants to play kickball with children and doesn't want anyone to feel bad. Look, you might have some deep soaring affection for kickball Jesus, but he is a figment of your imagination. The one true and living God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God who is holy, holy, holy. The God who gave the law of Moses and it is righteous. If you don't like that God, you don't love the one true and living God. Third caution. Another way to be mistaken about our love for God is to ask this question. Do I love God or do I simply love his gifts? Imagine a husband who didn't really love his wife. He just loved some of the things that she did. Some of the way she worked. He loved when she cooked supper and he loved sex. He doesn't care about her. He just wants these things from her. That's loving the gifts without loving the person. And listen, that kind of thing exists towards God. That kind of thing exists that that there can be, I'm okay with God. I like him when he's doing what I want him to do. This is the biggest thing that the prosperity gospel gets wrong, by the way. They, They get a lot wrong, but here is the worst. The worst thing that the prosperity gospel gets wrong is that that movement does not actually love God. They love money. They love success. They love the things of this earth. We do the whole God, religion, faith thing to get what we really want. What we really want is money. Joel Osteen's wife is infamous for a statement she made that when we obey, we don't do it for God. We do it for ourselves. She was revealing more of her heart than she realized when she said that. We must love him and not simply his gifts. Does it make sense that when God sends us through afflictions, it's a really good test because it is revealing whether or not we love him or are we only in this for what we can get out of it? Do you love him? If you love him, then we know this. We love him because he first loved us and drew us to himself. The next statement is that this promise is for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what what does this mean? called and called according to his purpose. Well, like like has happened numerous times in this letter, there is a really big doctrine that is just very briefly mentioned here. It's just part of an argument, part of an explanation. And what's gonna happen is he's gonna come back to this really big doctrine later and give more full explanation. So it's it's addressed briefly in verses 29 and 30. We're gonna look at that again here in just a second. But I want you to know that when we come to chapter 9, Chapter nine has one of the uh, clearest explanations uh, of this whole concept and all that is a part of God's sovereignty and salvation, election, predestination, this calling. So we're going to spend some significant time talking through those things. So there's going to be more explanations. So now let me just kind of give you the very quick rally version of it. Look at, look at verses 29 and 30. He's going to go into a little bit more detail on what it means to be called, what he's referring to. So verse 29. I want you to notice there are going to be six works of God that are mentioned here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Their sanctification, by the way, without using the word, conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 30 And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So the those, who are the those? They are the people who will be saved. But it's going to be explained. They are saved not because they're wiser or more godly or prettier than other people. It is because God, in His sovereign grace, comes to them and gives the gift of drawing them to Himself. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian not because you are wiser than everybody else. You are a Christian because God came to you and showed grace. God came and worked invisibly and drew you to himself. Let me show you just one verse. So we're not doing a full explanation, but let me show you just one verse that'll kind of help you. And if this is new for you, get the seeds planted and get some things stewing. Turn over to John six with me, please. John six. John six has quite a bit to say about God's sovereignty and salvation, but there's one verse here. We'll look at verse 44, John six, 44. Look what he says. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That drawing that is the calling that we were talking about. Pastor Ben, this, this morning in Sunday school, mentioned effectual calling and gave a definition for it. That is this right here. No, who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the security of justification and then leading to glorification. So um, some have already studied these kinds of things and you're anxiously giddy looking forward to when we come to chapter nine. Others of you, this could be the first time you're encountering this truth in this kind of thing. If this is your first time, then I imagine there's a can of worms that is just opening up in your mind. Your head might even be spinning a little bit going, wait a second. I thought." all these different things. There are futures of the Bible that deconstruct how you thought the world worked and will rework your thinking to show you how the world actually works. than this one right here, this one will keep you awake at night. It will humble you, confuse you and give you joy. It is glorious. But we start with this. Every time the Bible gives us some difficult hard to swallow, or even complex truth, here's where we begin. Your mind might be saying some things, but I don't see how this works, or I don't see how it's right, all these kinds of things. Here's where we begin. God said it, so it is reality. God said it, so the debate is over, over whether or not it's true. He said it, that's reality. We believe, and then as we grow, more light will be given, and we will be studying some of these things to come. So the calling of God leads to us to love God. This is another way of describing who a Christian is. Who is a Christian? Who's the one who is justified? They are those who have been called by God. They are those who love God. No, it is not your love that saves you. Faith is what saves you. But it is a defining characteristic. A true Christian is one who loves God. Just as other places have said, a true Christian is one who puts their sin to death because this is what God is producing. This is what God is bringing about. So now that we've considered who this is for, let's talk about the promise itself. Number two, God is causing good. Uh, If you look at the verse again, uh, some of the different translations that you have in your hands will read a little bit differently. The New American Standard uh, reads, and we know that God causes good all things to work together for good. There is some academic debate over the translation from the Greek about whether the phrase God causes uh, should be explicitly stated because it is implicitly referenced in the verse that is there. So that's just some of the academic stuff that goes on. But if you have an ESV or a New King James or NIV in your uh, hands, it'll say something like all things, we know all things work together for good to those who love God. Well, what is being taught? Why do they work together for good? Because of chance? Because of coincidence? Because we have luck on our side? No, because God is causing. God is orchestrating. We can also see this referenced when God speaks of those who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? God's purpose is his decision, his will, which he has decreed to come to pass. Meaning, what God wants in His secret will, His secret will that we do not know and is mysterious to us and we at times go, God, I don't know why you did that, but that's His secret will. What God wants in His secret will is what will happen in time. It is planned. It is pre-planned. All things work together for good, not because God is really good at making lemonade out of lemons. It's, it's not like uh, bad things happen on the earth and God has just become really skilled to like, okay, how can I bring a positive spin from this bad situation as though God is reacting to these things? No, all things work together for good. Because he is orchestrating the events and circumstances and even the dust particles of the earth. All things work together for good because God has ordained a plan. He is bringing them about. And yes, that means even pain and loss and death. He is that sovereign. He's working all things for good. Now... I imagine that we could probably pause right here and I could, uh, we're not going to do this, okay, but we we paused and I'd say everybody who has some kind of story in your life that you have seen some event, some series of events that happened where some painful thing led to some good thing, I expect that would take a couple of days to tell those kinds of stories. We've all got them. Uh, One of my good friends was in a, uh, a very horrible car accident. It was a near head-on collision. It wasn't all the way head-on. It was near head-on collision. And he ended up being brought to the hospital and they did MRIs to try to diagnose his injuries. And those MRIs later sometime the road, down the road were used to help reveal that his lymph nodes were swollen, which revealed that he had cancer that had made it into his lymph nodes. They were able to act And I'm convinced and he's convinced that the only reason he is alive right now, they had to do major surgery to remove many of his lymph nodes. The only reason he is alive is because of the MRIs, because of that accident. You all probably have accounts you know of just like that. Some freak, uncanny, maybe even painful event ended up saving someone's life. But I wanna say from the very beginning here, we love those stories We love the ones where there's this kind of happy ending of that somebody's physical life was saved or there was some kind of earthly blessing, but we have to understand and where we're going to is that God is still working for good even whenever there is terrifying loss. When believers die at at a young age, if we consider all the biblical accounts where we see God orchestrating and working good out of difficulty, complexities, and, and pain. That's a long list. Moses, Jonah, Esther, Ruth. Uh, maybe one of the clearest though, I think, uh, is the account of Joseph in the Bible. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons, and the Bible doesn't present it as a good thing, but Jacob had a favorite son, and his favorite son was Joseph. Because of this, Joseph's brothers, hated him. In fact, they hated him so much that nine of them one day decided they were going to kill him. Another brother, a 10th one stepped in and said, Oh, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him as a slave. I mean, after all, he's our brother. So they decided to sell him as a slave. It just so happened that at that moment, a band of Midianites were coming past. And so they sold their brother Joseph, to this band of Midianites. They took Joseph's tunic, they smeared blood on it, rolled it in the dust and brought it to their father and lied and said, we we found this. And so Jacob concluded that his son was dead. It just so happens that the Midianites that Joseph was sold to ended up traveling to Egypt where they did business with a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was a powerful man, bought Joseph, brought him into his house, set him in charge of things, and everything Joseph touched turned to gold. He was prospering in all that he did, and eventually Potiphar's wife began to lust after Joseph and tried to seduce him. When Joseph resisted her attempts, she made false accusations against him, and because Potiphar was a powerful man, he threw Joseph into prison, but the same prison that Pharaoh also used. There in prison, Joseph flourished again. He was even put in charge of things inside of the prison. While he was there, he interpreted some dreams for some fellow inmates. One of those inmates got released and went into the service of Pharaoh once again. And Joseph sat in prison for years. For years. But one night, Pharaoh had a dream. No one could interpret it. Just so happens that one of these inmates that had known Joseph in the prison and Joseph had interpreted a dream was there near Pharaoh. And so he mentions, hey, there's a guy in prison that I think could interpret your dream. Joseph was brought out of prison. Interprets Pharaoh's dream, offers words of counsel so wise that Pharaoh decided to release him from prison and make him second in command of all of Egypt, a major empire at the time. Joseph implements a strategy by the wisdom of God, his skills and administration institutes a plan that over the next seven years, they saved grain because God revealed a massive famine was coming after that. And because of Joseph's work, his wisdom, his administration, and all of these things, it turned out that many, at least many thousands of lives were saved from starvation because of the grain that was saved over the course of the next next seven years. And those lives included the descendants of Abraham, whom God had promised to bless and were good for. The Lord Jesus eventually came into the world from the bloodline of those lives that were saved from starvation by Joseph. But just consider it for a second. Joseph was in the right prison because of that false accusation. That false accusation came because he was in the right house. He got there because he was sold to this specific group of Midianites and all because his brothers did what they did and all of this came about, you know, because of coincidence. That's sarcasm, if you're not picking it up. Joseph went to Egypt, but I I mean, you gotta consider. We love the happy ending of that account. You realize he spent more than a decade in bondage. You you realize there would have been nights where there was wondering what are the purposes of God. More than a decade in bondage, false accusation. Joseph did all of this because Well, I want want to show you the biblical answer. Jump back to the book of Genesis with me, please. And look at uh, chapter 45, Genesis 45. Genesis 45, verse seven. More of the good news of the story is Joseph was eventually reunited with his family. He forgave his brothers. They were repentant. Jacob got to learn that his son was alive and they got reunited. And we have a couple of instances where Joseph is speaking with his brothers and this is one. So 45 verse 7, Joseph saying to his brothers, God sent me. You might even circle that word in your Bible. God sent me me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. How did Joseph end up in that position? God sent him. God was not passive. God was not merely watching. God was not trying to make lemonade out of lemons. God ordained it. God orchestrated it. And to add the complexity, oh, How did he orchestrate those events? Jump to Genesis 50 for a second. Which might be, what I'm about to show you, might be one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Every major doctrine of the Bible is introduced in the book of Genesis, by the way, and that includes... God's sovereignty, election, predestination. Look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. God orchestrated Joseph being sent. And how did he do it? Verse 20, as for you, Joseph, again, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. I just want you to consider that for a second. And it's complexity, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. God meant something. And evil, wicked people doing wicked things meant something. And yet it all came about according to the ordained plan of God. How does all that happen? Joseph's brothers we were not serving God voluntarily in what they did. Just as Judas was not voluntarily serving God when he betrayed Jesus. And yet all of it plays a part and come, somehow results in God's ordained plan. Understand that and you understand all the mysteries of the universe because you will not, but we're shown this mystery. God is that sovereign. See the point, God caused all of it. And like I mentioned, we, we love many of those kinds of accounts and we should, by the way, because praise God, my friend still gets to raise his children. Praise God, Joseph saved many lives. And so we should glorify God, but we also have to recognize that God is working good even when it does not result in people's earthly life being spared or earthly pleasantness coming. Romans 8, 28. Is also true for the North Korean believer living in a labor camp with a belly full of parasites, being slowly starved to death, regularly beaten, and maybe even raped. Does your understanding of God and his purposes have room for that? Does your understanding of God and his purposes have some kind of framework For comprehending how those things can also be for good. Because how can that be good? I mean, isn't that circumstance usually what we describe as like the worst? How can that be good? Part of our question and part of how that brings us turmoil, it reveals that in our weakness, we often misunderstand what is truly good and what is actually tragic. We say that again because it's kind of important. We often misunderstand what is truly good and what is actually tragic. And it is because in our short sightedness, we often can only see things from the earthly perspective. And it is not until we begin to learn to see with the eternal perspective, as God is working all things from heaven to bring about a great plan that goes beyond us. And there's a day of judgment and an eternal perspective. That's where we begin to understand what is actually good. Let me compare a couple stories here. David Brainerd was a young man who attended seminary education because he wanted to be a pastor. This is a guy who loved the Lord, David Brainerd. I want you to remember his name. But one day while he was at school in just kind of a rash moment, he made some um, uh, remarks that he later regretted. He criticized a professor and a tutor and word got back to them and he was expelled from school. He was kicked out of Harvard. Harvard. He was a young man who wanted to be a pastor, loved the Lord, but now his hopes of being a pastor were dashed. Actually, at that time, there was a law that if you did not graduate from one of these approved institutions, you could not be an ordained pastor in America. So his hopes of serving the Lord were dashed. So he began, he decided to preach the gospel in the only other way that he knew. He became a missionary to the American Indians living in the wilderness on the edges of society, specifically to the Delaware Indians. This is one of the things about him. Doing that kind of missionary work meant that he did not have a bed. He did not have a house. He had just a tent that he would sleep out in the woods. And for some of us, we kind of like that sort of thing. He hated it. He despised Sleeping out on the ground in the cold, he, he describes the, the rain pouring in and soaking him while he was there and the, the sickness that he would endure because of living in the constant cold and eating meager rations. He absolutely hated living in these conditions. He did it because he loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. And by the way, we know these things because he wrote about them. He wrote about them in a journal and his journal, you can pick up today, the life and diary of David Brainerd. It has actually been used of God to stir literally thousands of Christians to the mission field. Let that sink in for a second. There have been thousands of missionaries who would say that that one book help stir them to want to go to the mission field, including William Carey, the father of modern missions, and Jim Elliott, that guy that I'm all the time telling you about who died reaching an unreached people group down in South America. So a little by the way, if one book caused thousands of people to go to the mission field, you should read it. You should read it, okay? And that will be one of the good things I'm gonna reference that came about from his life. But he, he hated this life on the frontier, the cold and all of this. He did it because he loved the Lord. He loved the gospel. But he eventually took ill from tuberculosis, actually went in his sickness to the house of Jonathan Edwards. One of Jonathan Edwards' uh, daughters, Jerusha, cared for him on his deathbed. We do believe they actually fell in love with each other, but he was never able to marry her because he died. She later died of tuberculosis, which she caught from him as well. He died at the age of 29. I I want you just for a second to consider his life and consider it from the worldly definitions of what is good and what is tragic. Kicked out of college, never made a career, lived in poverty, slept on the ground, publicly shamed, never married and died at a young age. Is that how you'd write the script for your children if you got the chance? People of the world hear that story and they say, how tragic, how tragic, tragic. That's the word that's often used. But, Christian, part of what we have to uh, be, be seeing from Scripture is that that is backwards thinking. That man, David Brader, led. I don't know the number, but a significant number of souls uh, to faith in Christ among the Delaware Indians and was used of God to lead thousands to the mission field, to labor for the gospel. So who knows how many souls came to faith in Christ indirectly from his influence. And right now, that man is blissfully happy. Blissfully happy, and on the day of judgment, we will see it, we will watch, we will see David Brainerd receive his rewards on that day. And on that day, when we see him receive the the lavish rewards, you will wish you were him. We will wish that we had been able to be used like that. Tragic is not the word. God is working all things for good, but we have to define good according to its actual definition and not the sinful, short sighted definition that we often come to here. And let's compare that to another story. Let me just make one up. Let's make up a story about a guy that the world would call blessed and maybe even use religious language to say God really blessed him. Let's take a man who grew up in a nice home, got a good education. Went to church, went to a nice church that said nice things, nice, respectable religion, but no gospel. He goes to college, studies business, graduates high, gets a well-paying job. Marries, has kids. His little Johnny hits the winning home run at his tourney. Big house. He... His wife and his kids never gets cancer. Lives to retirement, buys a second home down in Florida. And he and his wife live out a nice, comfortable life down in the warm weather, lives to old age and dies in his sleep. The world hears that and says, oh man, that's the good life right there. God really blessed him. But this is Jesus's point in the parable about the man who built the bigger barns. That kind of thinking is completely backwards. What did God say to the man who built the bigger barns? You fool. You fool. David Brenner's life was not tragic. That's not what tragedy is. Tragedy is the man who lived a comfortable century and entered into eternity separated from Christ. That's tragic. We have to rethink what is good and what is tragic. God promises to work all things for our good, but not all things for our earthly present comfort and earthly prosperity. And one of the reasons we struggle with this is we fail to see how valuable holiness actually is. When you endure difficulties, When you endure afflictions, God is working to make you holy. And that is for your everlasting good, your everlasting joy. God is working all things for the good of his people. And so when God works to heal people from cancer, we will rejoice and we will glorify him. But when God chooses to Ordain a Johnny Erickson Tata to spend five decades in a wheelchair, but through her life, she has influenced how many, many thousands to know God. We will rejoice in that as well, and we will glorify Him. We will rejoice when things work out pleasantly, but we will also glorify God and know that He is working for good when believers die early and die in pain. And when you suffer, when you suffer, This promise enables you to bless his name and to assure your own heart. This I know that God is for me and begin to look for the good that he is bringing because in the end, eternity is all that matters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless your name and thank you for yet again Seeing another sweet, precious promise. It boggles our mind that you're able to work all things for however many Christians there are on the earth, just even right now, and yet you know every, the number of hairs on our head of each one of us. And you're working all things so that we will know you, so that we will be made holy. We thank you for this, God. Help us to take the right kind of comfort from it. Give us a, a godly confidence. Lord, knowing where we stand with you. Father, help us, we pray. Bless us as we're gonna leave here. Um, In just a moment, we pray that we will live to your glory. and We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at True Vine, I-N-D, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.